Good afternoon, everyone out there. My name is Eliyahu Fink, and you are listening to Think or Swim Live on The Stunt Show, coming to you live from Southern California, where unfortunately for the first time in a while, it is not sunny. So I cannot say sunny Southern California, although today it is uh, beautiful, just not sunny. And we are heard live on the Nahum Siegel Network at NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. Stunt Show is heard every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 Pacific. We include the Pacific because that's where I am. Uh, we have a rotating cast of characters keeping you entertained every Thursday during the Stunt Show. And today is my second Stunt Show um, hosting opportunity. It's a lot different feeling when you start off the first time, when you start off the second time. So I'm hopeful that um, today's show will reflect a little more experience on my, on my part. And I look forward to spending this time with you. Um, my name is, as I said earlier, is Eliyahu Fink. I am a radio show host for Nachum Siegel Network, but I am also the rabbi of the shul on the beach in Venice, California. And yes, it is as amazing as it sounds. The shul is on the beach. And uh, we invite any, everybody to join us for a Shabbos anytime you're in Los Angeles. Maybe you could uh, decide to spend Shabbos at the beach and uh, experience what it's like to have a Shabbos with us. You are invited. And in addition to my shul um, on the beach, I also have a shul. I put that word in quotation marks on the internet. I have a blog at thinkorswim.com and a Facebook page, which is very active with interesting conversations about what is happening in the Jewish world. I invite everybody to join the conversation, whether it's today um, on this show, where you can comment or leave uh, leave something on my Facebook page or send me a message if you'd like to contribute or be part of this conversation live. But of course, the conversation that we have now is just a small example of the kinds of conversations that we have all the time um, on the internet. With, with all kinds of people, which is one of the really cool things about the Internet is that we have the opportunity to have conversations and discussions with people that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak to under normal circumstances. So today's show is um, is, is a difficult topic. Uh, I chose it for, you know, there are good reasons to choose this topic at any time, but the reason that we're talking about it today, um, it's, prob- it's probably one of the more interesting background stories to a, to a radio show that I think that I've heard of. We're celebrating Hanukkah now. And first of all, I wanted to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah, that you're enjoying the holiday and enjoying the time together with your families. And yes, we celebrate Hanukkah in Venice Beach too, even though it's not cold and snowy. It's still nice. Uh, it's nice and beautiful, but it's still a beautiful holiday to celebrate, even if it doesn't feel like it felt when I was a kid, when it was freezing and uh, trying to stay warm. Celebrating Hanukkah in Venice Beach is just like celebrating Hanukkah anywhere else, except it's Venice Beach. Which, when you come visit, you'll understand what I mean. So, I'm thrilled to be hosting the stunt show for Hanukkah because, as I said earlier, the the topic that I want to discuss is very much related to Hanukkah because we all know that Hanukkah has tons of very interesting ways of celebrating the holiday because it's not a holiday that has any rituals that are mentioned explicitly in the Torah. It's a rabbinic holiday. The things that we do on Hanukkah certainly have tended to evolve and change throughout history. Certainly now in uh, America and throughout the world where this is a holiday season that is very prominent and very very vivid in the public zeitgeist, Hanukkah has taken a little bit more of a different a different flavor than it had before, and we are using um, Hanukkah in a way that maybe it wasn't used previously, now that we are trying to, uh, and I wouldn't say compete with who else, whoever else is celebrating today, but we are aware of their holiday and we also have our own. So one of the uh, cool things I like about 
all Jewish holidays is that there's a variety of ways that these holidays are celebrated and the rituals take on different flavors depending on where you are and depending on what your family's traditions are. So you can have two people from different places that have the same kind of, um, the same kind of holiday. They celebrate the same thing. They're celebrating and marking the same experience that we're trying to remember and trying to recreate and trying to enjoy, but they do so in such different ways that it can be almost unrecognizable that they're both celebrating the same thing. And that's okay because we all have different traditions that go back many generations and some things evolve in different places in different ways. Like an easy example of this is um, on other holidays. Let's talk about Pesach. You know, you talk about even about the, the food on Pesach for a Sephardic Jew, you can eat a lot of foods that an Ashkenazi Jew wouldn't eat. And then if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, there are many foods that um, some Ashkenazi Jews will eat if they are not, let's say, of, uh, of Hasidic groups or if they're not Chabad, they'll eat more things that people that are from those groups would not eat. So the, those experiences definitely change across the spectrum of, of Orthodox Judaism. But but even in smaller things like how we read the Haggadah. I know there are some families that read the Haggadah and each person in the family has a chance to read one paragraph and they translate it and then they move around the table and each person has their chance. Well, it's a beautiful way of, um, of doing the Haggadah, but that's not the way I grew up. The way I grew up was... The, the the leader of the of the seder would read it out loud. We would all read it to ourselves, and we would have discussions. So it's different flavors depending on the place and the family and the traditions that you come from. Of all the holidays, and um, I don't think that there's one that's more than the other. But of all the holidays, I like to see how Hanukkah changes more than perhaps other holidays because. Hanukkah does not have as much canonized material. It does not have as much that is required to be done that um, that we have in halacha. It's such a short amount of material that's in a halachic text that whatever we do um, beyond that is very varied. But there are some things that are more universal than others. It's pretty universal now that people associate latkes with Hanukkah. Now, it wasn't always that way, but at some point, latkes became associated with Hanukkah. Um, other examples of things that are just rituals that or traditions that became associated with Hanukkah would be like latkes, but also donuts, sufgan yot. Everybody eats donuts nowadays. I, I grew up, we made donuts in our home, and now I live near a kosher Krispy Kreme, so I don't have to make my own donuts because they'll never be as good as Krispy Kremes. And we have donuts on Hanukkah. That's not something that was done hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in fact, it seems that, that sufgan yot are actually a very recent thing that came about through a Sephardic influence to Israel. And in the 20th century, it became popular. Now Israel is like the Sufganiyot capital of the world. And during, uh, during this time of year, you have almost like contests between different, different, um, bakeries vying to see who has the greatest donut recipes and who can sell the coolest, most interesting donut. That's the way that they celebrate Hanukkah now in Israel. And, and, and it's spread across the world. Sufganiyot is a very integral part now of the celebration that people have for Hanukkah. And eating dairy is another example of things like, I mean, there are just so many examples of things that people do, and some, some people do them differently than others. Also, the way we like Hanukkah candles. Some families, each person likes their own Hanukkah candles. Other families, each person um, is Yotze. They fulfill their obligation by, by watching or listening to the head of the household lighting the Hanukkah candles. And in some places, they sing the songs a certain way. They sing the songs a different way. Some places sing Mo's tour. They sing the whole thing. Some people sing the only part of it. Everybody's got different things that they do. One thing that's become pretty popular is uh, the game of dreidel. And, you know, when you're a kid in school, they'll teach you that dreidel is something that was, you know, an ancient game that was played in the caves while they were hiding um, during the Hanukkah story. 
Now, it's possible that that might have happened. I don't know that it happened, and I don't think the game is actually that old. I think we can show that it's not. But the truth is that we also do know that this is a game that is played, or was played at least historically, in Europe, and it was the very, very same game that we play. Obviously, they had different letters. They didn't use the Hebrew alphabet for their uh, for their prizes, for determining who won their prizes. We use the Nun, Gimel, Hey, and Shin, or Pei, depending on where you are. But that's not to say that the game does not become part of Hanukkah. It does. It's part of Hanukkah because we've all started playing it, and it's fascinating to read the halachic and the social implications that you can that you can find discussing dreidel. You know, they 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 all talk about dreidel because um, you know people that are inquiring minds, the Jewish people that are trying to follow their um, ritual obligations are, and their traditions are going to ask their authorities, their rabbinic authorities, what they're supposed to do, if they're supposed to do it, if they're not supposed to do it, how they do it, how they shouldn't do it. And very interesting to see how some of the communities approach this game. Many people said it was okay, and obviously it caught on because we all know about it today and we all play it today. But there are some communities which still today do not play it, and there are some authorities that say it's prohibited to play it for a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons actually is is, is pretty um, is pretty on point. And, and that reason is because technically uh, playing dreidel is a form of gambling. Now, what does that mean? It's a form of gambling. It means that when you, when you spin a dreidel, um, there's no control over what will happen. It's totally based upon luck. You cannot, unless you're cheating, obviously, you cannot force yourself or force your dreidel to give you a, a, a specific result unless you obviously have hooked up the dreidels in a way that are, that are, are cheating. That's not allowed either. But besides for that, it's pure luck. No matter what your four-year-old child thinks, no matter what your five-year-old child thinks, they can't be good at dreidel. There's no such thing as being good at dreidel. The only thing you can be good at is spinning a dreidel. That's a skill. That's fun. So you could spill, you know, our kids, they want to, when they, when they spin the dreidel on the bottom and they turn it on like the regular way of spinning the dreidel, that's called old school. And they say when they spin it and they turn it upside down and they spin it by the little point at the top, which is the holder, and you spin it upside down, that's called new school. So you can spin it old school, you could spin it new school, you can be a good spinner, you could be a bad spinner, but it doesn't change whether or not you're going to get a nun, a gimel, a hay, or a shin. It's a completely luck-based game. And because it's a completely luck-based game, there's no way for you to influence the um, the result. It's not something that we would say is based upon skill. And if it's not based upon skill, and you're placing real money or real um, stakes attached to that, um, it, it's clearly something that could be considered gambling. And because of that, there are some authorities that have said that it's perhaps better not to play it. Now, I don't think it's fair to say that a person should not play it because this is gambling. Um, of course, there is halakhic precedent. A person could base their opinion on this, but the truth is that it's not really, really gambling um, in the sense that it's something that is very confined to the game itself, and usually it's supervised, and it's something that is part of a fun thing the families do together. But it doesn't have, it doesn't always stay that way, is my point. Um, and because it doesn't always stay that way, it can become a serious example of gambling. You know, when, if a person is playing a game of chance or luck, it doesn't matter what the devices you're using to play that game of chance or luck, whether it's the lottery or it's, or it's roulette or it's any other example of a game that has pure luck. It doesn't matter what the device is. It doesn't matter if it's a holy device or an unholy device. If a person would live their life and say, let's make a game where we bet upon, if you open up a Gemara and it says a certain thing on the page 
And if it says that on the page, you win $5. If it says something else on the page, you win $3. If you says something else on the page, you lose a dollar. If you made a game like that, that would be gambling. It doesn't matter that the device you're using is, is a religious article like a Gemara. It's, it's irrelevant. It's still something that we would consider gambling. So when we talk about dreidel, we have to be concerned about whether or not it is gambling. But I'm talking about the next level beyond that. Let's assume that you're allowed to play the game of dreidel, even though it could technically be considered gambling. That doesn't satisfy every possible case because even if it's not a halachic problem of gambling, there's a social problem of gambling. And what do I mean by the social problem of gambling? People can become addicted to gambling. In fact, gambling is at least as addictive as the other forms of addiction that we are accustomed to hearing about. So talking about alcohol, we all know that people can become addicted to alcohol. Talk about drugs, heavy, heavy drugs, whether it's narcotics that you can buy at a pharmacy or get them over the counter, or whether it's illegal drugs that you have to buy from a guy in a street corner. It doesn't matter. They are addictive materials, and you, you, we all know you, a person can become addicted to them. I think it's less obvious to people that we can become addicted to gambling. And there's gamblers who are compulsive. They go beyond just habitual. They go just beyond people that are harming themselves, but they actually become addicts. And an addict is scientifically something different than a person who just does something as as as, as a pastime, as, as a hobby, something that they want to do, something they enjoy doing. That's one thing. Addiction is a completely different thing. And through the course of my experiences in um, dealing with this kind of thing, and I'll get to where, where, where my experience comes from in a moment, I found that there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of things that people think about this issue in general, about gambling, that are not perfectly accurate, and there are also a lot of myths and a lot of old information that has not been debunked. So we have some time today, and it's Hanukkah. People play dreidel. People bet with dreidels, and I thought that it's it's a good idea to now to take this opportunity to talk about this important issue and think about dreidel. You may say to yourself, it's so far-fetched. Who would ever become addicted to gambling? What is What kind of person is going to be Gambling on dreidel, it's so stupid. If you're, it's not like a real gambling. It's, if you're people that are addicts, they're probably addicts. Like they go to the bet on the horses or they bet on sports or boxing or they go to Atlantic City or they go to Vegas. Those are the real addicts. But it's not really true. An addict that is addicted to gambling will do anything that is like gambling. When I was in yeshiva, and this is a true story. You know, I don't know all the facts because I'm not inside another person's head. But when I was in yeshiva, it was considered acceptable and it was popular and it was fun for people to play dreidel during the entire month of Kislev. So once Kislev hit the month of Hanukkah, you had weeks of people playing dreidel every free second they got. Everywhere you would look, there's like people of people huddled up in, in little circles playing dreidel. But it was like high stakes dreidel. It wasn't like for, um, it wasn't just for like um, uh, Hanukkah gelt. It wasn't just for gold coins. Maybe it started out that way. But eventually, these games became much more high stakes. People would bring serious money. I mean, when I say serious money, I don't mean a dollar or two. I mean twenty dollars. I mean a hundred dollars. I mean a few hundred dollars. There were there were rounds of dreidel that were happening where people were winning and losing in the hundreds of dollars. And over the courses of weeks, people who were out of control, they could not control what they were doing. They became addicted to it, or at least compulsive. Lost thousands of dollars. And there was one guy in particular that I remember who it was identifiable that he had an issue and he was unable to stop and he was just 
everywhere he would go, it was like he was he was a, he was a junkie. I mean, we've all seen people like this that they need to get a fix. He would walk around with his like dreidel and say like, anybody want to play dreidel? I need to play dreidel. And it was like sad to watch, and and we saw it, and he actually was addicted. And I think he I think that he was checked into a place and took care. I wasn't involved with the case. But he was a friend of mine at the time, but I do know that he was at least um, at least at the very least the yeshiva would make sure that he was told to seek help. I don't know if everything worked out that way at the time. I wasn't involved privy, privy to the details, but I did see this happen in front of my eyes. I saw hundreds of kids playing dreidel, gambling, and then I also saw the one person of the group, and maybe there were others, but there was at least one person of the group that played dreidel and became an addict. And the addict is different than the person who plays. The person who plays chooses whether they want to play or not. And every time a person makes a choice, they have to choose between, between the thing that's fun sometimes versus the thing that's good or the thing that's easy versus the thing that takes a little more effort. That's normal situation. That's what regular people are. When it comes to gambling and addictive, addictive gambling, it all changes. No longer do we say the person has that kind of choice anymore. They are compelled to do it the same way a person who needs to eat is compelled to eat. You don't eat every day because you've made a conscious choice. Today I'm going to eat. The reason that you eat if you're a healthy person is because your your body has natural instincts that require it to do certain things for survival. So for a person that's an addict, the thing that they're addicted to becomes as compulsive, as important, as necessary as eating or going to the bathroom. Whatever it is that we have to do that we don't have to think about, that's what it feels like to the gambler. So I thought that it would be wise to talk about gambling in that context today. Sorry about that phone in the background. I apologize. In the meantime, um, just continue this conversation here. Compulsive gambling is an addiction. It can become an addiction. And the same way that can become an addiction, anything can become an addiction. A, a thing that's um, a, a, a gambling, a, ga- a gambler that's an addict would need to seek counseling and have help and to recover from that. And similarly, other kinds of things that people become addicted to also require recovery and working through that. And I had a close friend who uh, in high school, we were best friends. And then he went through a process by which he had some mental health issues. And eventually that combined with his addiction issues became very serious. And I lost track of him between the time that he left our high school. And um, when we were young adults, I caught up with him once. And then two years ago on Hanukkah, which is why this all comes back to Hanukkah, besides the dreidel, but also this. Two years ago, Hanukkah, this guy wanders into my shul on the beach at a Hanukkah party out of nowhere. I hadn't seen him in 12, 13 years. And it was very moving. It was very powerful to see him. We reconnected and we became very close once again. And, and through our re- renewed relationship, I learned that this guy had been through counseling and recovery and therapy and detox, addiction things for you know, years and years and years, he'd been working on himself on this issue forever. He showed me his 45-day chip when he was there. 45-day chip means that it's 45 days sober, and that was a big deal for him. 45 days without doing any drugs was a huge thing for him. He was a real addict, and it was really sad to see, but it was also really empowering to see how a person who is so compelled to do these things, so addicted, can still find the strength to sometimes rise above it. And this guy was, besides for the addiction issues, also had the mental health stuff, so it was bipolar and manic depressive. So at times he was the most amazingly successful and, um, and, and, and beautiful person really, despite the addictions and despite the mental health, but then he would fall down and he would 
crash and it would all become, uh, it would all become difficult and it would all become challenging and you would find a dark place and be hard for him to get out of it for a while. And I loved him as a dear friend and I, uh, fortunately I, I lost him as a dear friend this past summer. He died an overdose and at his funeral, which I was privileged to speak at, it was so amazing how I heard from his family, his brothers, everybody who spoke, sisters, that he was dealing with his addiction. They knew about it. It was something they were working on. It was real. And because it was real, because they knew about it, um, they were honest about it. And they spoke about addiction at this, um, at this funeral, like in a way that I had never heard about it before. And that was very powerful to me because it set up a contrast between the way that we talk about addiction typically in the from community and the way they talked about it. And this is a family of yeshiva people, fathers of Rebbe, and they were honest. They felt, they felt it was important for the community to hear the truth. And the truth is not comfortable for a lot of people. The truth is hard and it's something that not everybody wants to talk about. People don't want to hear that we can't control everything. People don't want to hear that Torah and tefillah and teshuva are not necessarily enough in order to overcome serious addiction. So when I heard that, I realized that it's important to have this public conversation. And, and because we're going to have this public conversation, and I think it's so important, I want to have experts teach all of you who are listening what they have heard and what they know about this issue because it's not enough to hear from me. I, I know a little. I, mean, I know a little bit because, as I said earlier, I had this friend. And I also know a little bit because in my work as a rabbi on the beach, I have been privileged to meet many people. And one of the things that I, uh, I learned and is about addiction because – I have, um, I have, I have, I have hosted in my shul and in my, in my interactions, people who are in recovery or at sober living, which is post recovery in my neighborhood in Los Angeles and Santa Monica. It's a very good place for people to recover. And because it's a good place for people to recover, a lot of firm kids that are struggling with this stuff or have been through recovery end up here. And they sometimes want to have a Jewish connection. So I have an opportunity to talk with them and to meet with them. And I regularly will, engage them, have them over for Shabbos meals, have that shul, uh, meet them for coffee and talk. And I listen a lot and I learn a lot. And what I've learned is that even though I am very interested and very open to hearing new ideas and learning about addiction in general, I am still very uneducated compared to experts and people that have been either through the process as addicts who are in recovery. And I know very little about it because compared to people that are um professionals in the field that are dealing with this on a regular basis, they are people that see every possible kind of addiction, every single possible kind of how people deal with addiction. So I want to introduce my guest. Um, originally, I'd hoped to have a man named Asher Gottesman, who is the person who really runs these um, these recovery centers, these sober living centers in, in my neighborhood in Santa Monica. But of course, as a person that is in that industry, it gets called away a lot of times on important matters. And Today is no exception. So although it was hoped that he would be able to join us, uh, I just, I've just been informed that he will not, but I have a, uh, another guest who I had spoken with earlier that was on call just in case Asher was not available. And this gentleman 
works for Asher, uh, for Asher Goddessman, in his, um, in his sober living, in his sober living, um, in his sober living facilities. And I'm going to introduce this man and we'll have him tell us a little bit about himself and then we'll try to get more into this discussion here about how we handle and how we deal with things like addiction and, and, and then recovery in the Orthodox Jewish community. And I want to invite everybody, anybody who's interested in participating in this conversation, you have many opportunities to contact me or reach me if you want to be part of this. You can uh, find me on social media, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and send me a message or through my email account or uh, Google chat. That's rabbifink at gmail.com. This is a public discussion. I want everybody to have an opportunity to be part of this. And if you want your words heard, you don't have to be um, embarrassed or have to be ashamed. I will not say who you are. I don't, I don't need to have any um, information made public. But if you want to have something addressed, just let us know. And I want, I'll talk about it. And that way, at least you're not the only one that's wondering the question. I guarantee you, if there's a question you have, somebody else has the question too. So my guest, and I'd like to welcome uh, to the show, is a, named, a guy named Asher, Asher Ehrman, who is uh, born and raised in Muncie, New York. Welcome to the show, Asher. Hello, hello, Rabbi Fink. How are you? I'm well. I think, I think that um, it's, it's great to have you here. And it's been, it's been hard for me to talk about this without... Um, having first-hand knowledge from the, from, from the perspective of somebody who's either gone through the recovery process and engaged in the process currently or uh, been somebody who has been counseling people as a professional. But my layperson's knowledge still, I know, sur- sur- surpasses what most people know. But I wanted to bring you in here because I think you have a story to tell and I think you have things to say from your experience that would illuminate the conversation a, a lot more. So I'll tell, I'll tell our audience a little bit about you and then I want you to fill in the blanks. Basically, Asher Ehrman... Our guest is, is somebody who grew up in Muncie, New York, a guy who went to yeshivas, regular, the kinds of uh, experiences that you would expect a regular yeshiva boy to have in Muncie, New York, which is very typical. And then there were, there were incidents, there were things that happened that led him along a path where it was addiction and it was things that could not be solved just with a yeshiva education. And um, we're very fortunate. All of us are very fortunate that um, the programs that Asher ended up in were successful and he's been working with people that are in the same kinds of situations as, as he is now. And he has a unique perspective on how this is handled in the Orthodox Jewish community um, because that's where he was, that's where he was living when this all, uh, when this all manifested. So um, I'm going to start, Asher, I want to start you off, Asher. I want, to t- I want you to tell us like, what was it like growing up in Muncie? Where did you see yourself as an adult when you were a kid and a teenager growing up in Muncie? So I'll tell you, I, I, I always felt myself, um, you know, going through the system, so to say, and, you know, sort of going through the motions. And I found my biggest, um, I'd say, struggle was I constantly had questions and they weren't being answered. And I, I wasn't okay with just being sort of the robotic, I'm just going to do. And maybe, you know, some it works for some, doesn't work for some. But my experience was, you know, I had questions I wanted, I wanted answers, and I was more told, well, just do and you'll get the answers one day, and I had a hard time doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, so well, how did that affect what you thought you would end up as, you know, when, you know, and every kid is like that, you know, like when, especially in the firm community, you, you know that your whole life is kind of like this audition for adulthood, for a shidduch, and for whatever you're going to do later. So is that something that you thought about, where am I going to be? For sure. I imagine I'd be in, in Kyle for probably, you know, the first two, three years and then either become, you know, a real estate goon or some sort of life <laughs> insurance agent. 
Right. You know, that's that's just sort of the path right. that I thought I'd be down, you know. And when you say that, you mean what you're really saying is you thought you'd feel just like the kind of person that you were, that your friends were. You know, you didn't see yourself as being any different or having a different experience as you got older. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And then at a certain point, you must have realized that there's something, there was something different. So maybe tell us like what what the path was, how it started that you went along a path that ended up being a little different, and then tell us maybe what it felt like to to realize that there was something different. So I'll tell you, the biggest difference for me was I never felt part of. Um, and, and it had nothing to do with the community or anything. It was a struggle within myself um, of just not feeling part of. So I constantly tried different things and, you know, different avenues, whether it was learning 18 hours a day so, I'll, you know, I'll feel good about myself. It was always extremes, you know, or, you know, dropping it all. It was like it was like a roller coaster, so to say, um, just trying to, be a perfectionist and in my head fit into exactly what that ideal um, person would be as well as feeling part of a community. And Mm -hmm. I think the biggest gift I got right now where I'm at right now is that I'm part of a community. You know, that was something I've been searching for my whole life. Right. And, and that's something I want to get to as, as we progress through the story. But I want to talk about the first part of the story. Like the, the, where you are now is so far from where people that are in the from community are because they're not in that community. They're in their own community, which is fine, and it's great, and it's beautiful, and I love it, and we all love it. But there's something where you are now that's very different, and I want to kind of get through that process, help the audience understand what it means to get there and why it's important to get there. So let's start with when did you start to see that you were – when did you start to notice? When did other people start to notice that you were doing things that you were um, – that you were doing things that were – that could be addictive or they were doing things that were of the kinds of nature that could become come, become addictions? So I didn't notice it until I actually um, started, uh, you know, actually tried my first drug. Before then, I never even noticed the patterns or anything of that sort. It was only actually my first rehab where they told me, you know, it was one of the assignments. You have to sit back and reflect on your, you know, childhood. Right, go back in the past. To see, yeah, to see where, where sort of you started having uh, addictive behaviors. So when, so, did, so when did then, it start? Like I, I you now know this reflection. It. So tell us when it started. So I'll tell you it was whether, you know, there was something I, the perfect example I, I, I give is there's some people you'll see, they'll sit down with a bag of popcorn and they'll eat, you know, one piece of popcorn at a time. I couldn't walk away from that bag until it was finished. And there was no such thing as just putting one at a time. I was handfuls, you know, <laughs> it just, that off switch button didn't exist in my in my head. It was once I started and I liked something, I was going to do it until like I was burnt out from the whole thing. Right. There was no longer a, an it, off switch. Yeah. Whether it was basketball as a kid that I loved and I'd sit and play basketball for six hours straight and and you know no matter what the at what expense whether it was missing Seder whether whether it was you know skipping homework I just wanted to play basketball because I liked it. Right now, I mean, this this sound like to me. I understand this because I've I've heard this, but I remember what I felt like when I heard this the first time, and it was it's it's hard for people to understand. Like, why is this different than the other kid who wants to play basketball? Why is it different? Why can't why can't we just just say that? Well, that kid that stopped playing, it's because he has self control and he's mature and he's he's worked on himself, and it's hard for him too. But he's he's like a good person who's able to do it. A person who can't stop, it's because they don't really want to, and they're a bad person. Tell us why that's not really true. So I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's the way you look at it, right? Now, there's more and more studies coming out saying that addiction is, it's a disease, right? 
So I remember when I when I wanted to stop, I originally I reached out for help and I said I I think I need treatment. The first response I got was just stop, stop being so weak. And, and who did you? Th- this is important though. Who did you go to and who said not the name of the person, but what kind of person was this? Uh, the people that I looked up to. So at these in the in the orthodox community, you were rabbis or mentors or whatever. What was that? I was just saying these are people from the orthodox community. These are rabbis or mentors, people like that. Yeah, exactly. People like that, right. but they were not well versed in the addiction field. So well, yeah, that's the important like, thing. Just yeah. stop. I don't, you know, stop being like this. You know, stop giving into your taiva, so to say. And and then the way it was explained to, me, and I really felt guilty about it. I was like, why can't I just stop? And when it was explained to me, it's sort of like telling, it's like telling a diabetic, stop having diabetes. Yeah, stop having cancer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it just doesn't work that way. Right, and that's very hard for people to understand because they see the behavior. Like when I'll, I'll explain, the th- I think why it's so hard. It, you know, if I see a person that's doing a behavior that's addictive, let's say there's an addict, he's addicted to um, to alcohol, let's say, and he drinks. Now everybody drinks, right? Everybody has a little bit of alcohol here and there. So we all know what it's like to drink a little bit. We all like it a little bit. Some people don't. Most people do. And we all know that we have the ability to stop. We have to get sick of it usually. It's like gross. We had, we need to stop. So that's one experience. And then we also see like, okay, that person has, uh, you know, cancer, whatever. And we say, okay, I, I don't have that. And, and I don't know what it's like to have that, but I assume that a person can't just turn it off. So we don't have the common experience with the person who has cancer to be able to, to, to be able to even make the mistake to think that it's like something you could start or stop, like whether you're going to walk or whether you're going to sit. But when it talks about things that are behaviors that we do engage in, like whether it's drinking alcohol, whether it's taking a prescription medicine, or whether it's gambling, or even just eating, there's there actually are eating addicts. They cannot stop either overeaters. They cannot stop eating. And we say to ourselves, "Well, I do that, and it's easy for it's not easy for me to stop sometimes, but I do anyway. Why can't they?" And that makes it so hard for for us, the the, the non-addict, to look at the addict and see something that is different than our experience. Absolutely, but at the same time, with with more knowledge and more understanding, um, you know that 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 whole thought process changes. Right. So we have to do a better job of educating people and helping people in positions of authority, and that they have to know what it looks like to see somebody who's an addict. So what did it look like for you? Tell us what it was like when you were an addict. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that 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 may think that they know somebody who's an addict, or they see somebody and they see behavior, they say maybe this person's an addict, or maybe they, they don't. But now that they're going to think about it, now they heard this. What does it look like? What did it look like for you? As an addict, what was your addictive so, behavior that you, you did me, that was me, something that we could off, see? It started off just drinking on the weekends, you know. So, you know, most people would say I wasn't an addict simply because come Shabbos, Shabbos day, you go to a kiddish, you drink a little bit too much, you go to sleep, you sleep it off, and, and, and that was it. The next thing I know, I'm, uh, you know, someone introduces me and says, hey, you know, I was I used to smoke cigarettes. So I was like, hey, try this, smoke it. It's just not a big deal. And, you know, so I was like, okay, I'll give it a try, right? This is the first time I smoked weed. I was 19 years old. Um, six months later, someone introduced me to some pills. And the next thing I know, age 21, I'm sitting in a detox center and heading off to rehab. Um, wow. Wow. I mean, I, that's, 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 that's a two-year period where it's like super fast, really, to go from never – thinking that you're an addict and then all of a sudden being at this rock bottom place where you need to go to, to rehab. But I, I want to focus a little bit on this middle period, which is the part of part of this that the from community probably sees most often, right? They see people that may be doing these behaviors. So 
What does it look like in the day, like in, in the kind of I'll life? be very honest. It's very hard to see those behaviors simply because there is, I know, I know my biggest struggle was probably after the first year, I, I, was, I would have loved to get the help. But my biggest fear was losing the chance of getting a shidduch and being judged that, oh, my gosh, I'm a, I'm a sick person. I do drugs. So I held that secret, and I made sure to always go to work. I kept on, I went to Shachrisman Khamarev. I did whatever I had to do to keep that persona that I, I had it going on, and I was just a well person, so to say. Right. Well, I mean, that's, down, it's, I was dying inside. It's, I mean, that's so, it's so heartbreaking to hear for, for so many reasons, but, you know, I mean, like, it's crazy to think that we are more concerned about our shidduch than our own life, right? This is life. If a person doesn't take care of this, they, they're not going to make it. And even if they got their shidduch, they would be in a situation where they have this thing to deal with. That's not a fair place to put anybody else in either. So it seems that it's, it's, it's disturbing. It, it hurts to hear that a person and, and by the way, you're not the only person. Of course, everybody that's in this kind of situation has the same kinds of thought process. I've heard this a million times that we prioritize I mean, this I can tell you, I get, I get too many calls a day of, you know, and my, 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 the first thing I always say is just don't, don't be worried to talk about it. You know, there's, there's well, no reason to, to be afraid to get the help that you need. Of course. And, and then also you have to make sure, make sure you call the right place. But, you know, this idea though that we, we, we sacrifice our lives on the altar of a shidduch. It's, it's virtually insane. And it's something that we need to work on because if we can somehow uh, reconfigure our, um, our system, that's, that's instead of saying that our system is that the priority is the shidduch, we say the priority is your health and the priority is your success as a person, then maybe we are able to kind of shift it a little bit. It's something that's, I think about that. I think that's maybe something that we can do a little bit. But the other thing that we can do is, um, maybe tell us a little bit about what you were what you were going through as you were addicted, and then when did you realize you had to get help? So, I mean, at first, again, you know, there's the the famous thing you're going to hear from a lot of people is it's just weed, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just weed. Even if you intervene and you say, "Hey, listen," because I, I remember everyone did it to me. Like once in a while, I'll come late to something, or I didn't have something to make my eyes not look bloodshot, so. Someone was like, hey, you look, you just don't look good. And my response, would, and they're like, hey, maybe you have a problem. Maybe you should possibly go talk to someone, right? My response always was, hey, listen, I'm not a drug addict. It's just weed. And then, and it's unfortunate that it needs to get to the point where in someone's head they feel now they're qualified to get the help because they took it to the next level. But I felt that I, even throughout my drug use, I felt the need, once I felt I needed the help when I was just smoking weed, I made sure to go to a little bit harder drugs than I qualified, so to say, to, to deserve to get help. Right. It's like you need to, it's so self-destructive in the sense that you feel like you're not worthy of fixing things unless they're so broken. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Now, so, I want to give you, know, you a little bit of, use, of, of something that I've heard. You yeah, know, I, I've, been, I've been talking a little bit with people about um, the gambling addiction because I was, I was trying to, um, to do a little bit of, of, uh, of research and talk to people about uh, this issue because it relates to Hanukkah and the dreidel and, and, and the gambling that, that could be associated with that. And I was talking to a guy and he says that, you know, he was a gambling addict, but he didn't, he didn't like realize at the beginning because he's just like, uh, I'm spending a full day at a casino, spending gambling more money than he makes in a year. And still this person is like thinking, maybe I'm not really an addict. And then after a full night of spending, all, of losing all this money, like say, well, maybe I am an addict. Then it, it would be this struggle of, 
am I, am I not? And it would be very difficult for the person to come to grips with the fact that they were. But it's just as possible to get addicted to things like gambling and to eating disorders and other things that are not narcotics or drugs that have what we would imagine to be a more scientific or physical connection between the person and the chemical need. It's even behaviors and um, the behaviors create the chemical in the brain. So that's kind of the, the way that addiction happens when it's not a chemical dependency. So regular person that's addicted to even cigarettes or caffeine, things that are less innocuous, there's a chemical addiction. But then for the people that are addicted to behaviors, it's that the behavior gives them a feeling. The feeling creates a chemical in the brain and that becomes the thing that they're addicted to. And because that's the thing they're addicted to, that requires recovery as well. 100%. So tell us a little bit about the recovery process. I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's difficult. It's, 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 it's long, but I also have learned that it's very different from the way that we approach life generally. So tell us a little bit about how the approach to life kind of shifts and changes in recovery. So I'll tell you, yes. Is it difficult? Yes. Everyone has their own experience. Everyone has their own journey, you know, for some, you know, the change happens, so to say, within a week or two. For some, it takes many months to even start feeling different. Have in mind what I see is most people that are struggling with addiction are trying to some to fill some sort of void, right? So, for like what you were just saying, though, whether it's the behavior, substances, gambling, food, whatever it is, it's it's trying to take the place of a void that per, the person is feeling. So when the person takes that addictive behavior away, whatever it is, that that void becomes, you know, magnified, and there's, they go into panic mode. You know, their brain instantly goes, "Okay, I need something right now to numb this void feeling," and 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 it's sort of you don't know where to turn, so to say, and that's where the biggest struggle happens. You know, you're like, "Okay, I'm I'm left sort of just bare right now." And that's where, that's where the process and change starts happening. You sit down, you know, therapy, counseling, to figuring out a way to fill that, not fill that void, but to, to take care of that void in a healthy manner. Right. And then Whether the buddy system also, you know, having a mentor or somebody that you can call whenever you're feeling it and they understand you, they've been through the same struggle, really changes the way that a person goes through recovery. And it's, that's why you don't do it alone. That's why there are meetings. That's why there's, as you said earlier, a community. So speak to us a little bit about this uh, this other side, this community part of it, because I think a lot of from people might think that we have a community. We, you, why don't you just call your Harusa? What, what do you need these people for? Why do you need to go outside the system, as it were, to get the help? Well, I'll give you the, I'll give you the perfect example of that. Actually, the person who helped me, who's also from Muncie, um, Yasso Grossman, he, he helped me get into, into rehab numerous times. And the example he always gives me is as follows. If, if Hasrashalm, I got, diagnosed with, uh, let's say, cancer, right? And I needed to go, and, and the doctor tells me we're going to have to do some chemotherapy, right? Am I going to call my friend who's never experienced cancer or never, you know, never experienced anything to do with it, or am I going to go and look towards the community of people that have struggled, struggled with cancer and speak to them and say, okay, listen, my life's on the line here. This is, you know, life and death here. Who do you recommend, Right. And t- everyone's going to tell me different ones, whatever it is. And I'm going to go and I'm going to call the doctor who specializes in this, and I'm going to discuss, interview a few of them. And finally, I'm going to pick the, work, the, the one that I feel I can put my life in their hands. So right. it's the same kind of thing. Like, yes, 
there's a community, but there's many different kind of communities. When I'm struggling in addiction, I need to reach out to someone who can relate to me about my addiction and help me in my addiction. I'm not going to call my chavrusa and tell him, let's go, let's go sit down and learn a block of Mara when I'm, when I'm struggling with something in addiction. I need to call someone that can understand my addiction and help me in that area. Right. So let me go back for one thing that you said earlier, you know, and this, this I think is another question that I think that the community doesn't have, a, and I see the from community has a hard time understanding. You know, you said that there's a void that's being filled. And they say, well, then why don't you just fill that void with Torah and mitzvot and Judaism? Why do you need to go fill that void with something like destructive? And that's the first question. And then you say, okay, well, I did that already, and then I'm going to stop doing that. And then you say, well, then there's this void that needs to be filled or it needs to be handled or managed, as you said earlier. Then they say, okay, so still, why do you need to have that managed? Why do you need to have that happen on the outside? Why can't that happen on the inside from within us? So, and again, I mean... Because every, every single person is unique in their own way. So there is no one formula that works for everyone. You know, so if I had one answer that worked for every single person that, that struggles with addiction, I'll tell you I'll be a multi-billionaire. <laughs> but there is, there, that answer isn't there. Every single person, you need to meet them exactly where they're at and, 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 and let them know that the help is there. So one person, yes, going, you know, sitting down and filling it, filling it with terror mitzvahs and, and, and only that may help. Someone else, maybe, yes, terror mitzvahs, they need to do that as well as, you know, X, Y, and Z or whatever it is, you know. So each person, you have to sit down with them, get a clear understanding of what's really going on, and figure out exactly how you can help them grow to their fullest potential in whatever way that is. Right, and I think that's a great way of, ex- of explaining it, and, and, you, and you said it beautifully. Um, now, there's also, you know, some kinds of addiction that are less detectable, you know, especially I think with um, prescription medication. It's something that's huge now, where people will get prescriptions and they'll say th- and they'll say that they need them, and then, you know, how is a doctor really supposed to diagnose certain things that require, you know, honesty from the patient, and then they get addicted to the uh, to the to the to the drugs, or they even needed it at, at first and they can't get off of it. So. Does does the recovery that you guys do work with that kind of uh, that kind of problem as well? What what is what is what is that person? What, how is that person supposed to cope? They need the drug because of some condition, but then they have to they can't get off it because of the addiction. It's it's like a vicious cycle. So again, there's 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 many alternatives, and yes, there are some people that truly need to be on medications. I'll give you another example, even even better. Let's take food addiction, for instance, right? You can't just stop food cold turkey. You have <laughs> right, that's to a great eat. point. Right? Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely ways. That's why you have a mentor. You have a sponsor. You have the meetings you go to. You're constantly checking in. And, again, you know, you, people, you know, a lot of people would tell me, okay, so you're going to go to a meeting every single day, three times a day for the rest of your life? Some people <laughs> do, you know. And again, it's, it's each person, it's based on where they're at and what they need. Well, I you know, actually find it ironic that, that, a, that a firm person is, is asking, you know, you'll go to a meeting three times a day, every single day for the rest of your life. Well, yeah, we do. We had Shachar, Smincha, and Marv, you know, but for some people exactly. that works. <laughs> and for a lot of people, that's not enough. That, that actually doesn't help them. They need, they need something that's more substantial in, in, in handling these, these problems of, of addiction. Now, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to get to one more thing about the process of recovery and what's known as the 12-step program. And what I've noticed is, that there's a different outlook on life that people that are dealing with addiction have. And that is something like you're never going to get over addiction. You're never going to be cured. You're never going to be somebody that's no longer an addict. People that are sober for 30, 40, 50 years still say, I'm an addict. And that um, is a kind of 
living where a person never really gets to this place that they're trying to get to. There's no destination. The destination, the only destination a person that's an addict can reach really is death. Everything until then is a, is a struggle to get to the place, is a struggle to just be in that place of not giving in. And um, tell us what you think, just give quickly, because I really, I really have only a few minutes left, but quickly about how you feel like that changed the, some of the things about the way you thought about stuff, especially the way you thought about yourself. So, uh, to be very honest, you know, when I hear that, I say it's no different than, than, than Yiddishkeit, you know. There's, when you sit down and learn, right, you sit down and, and you're doing Torah Mitzvahs, there's no end game. There's no, you know, there's, there's no, like, destination besides, I mean, you're constantly looking to grow until the day you die, or at least I, you know, at least for myself, I'm constantly looking to grow until the day I die, right? Right, but didn't that maybe change after you had the, the, the experience of the recovery and the 12 steps and you realized, well, wow, wow, this actually does make sense in Judaism, but, but you didn't probably think that way beforehand. Not at all. But I, uh, most of the things I feel is, is, is basically it's in the daily routine that was taught to me. And, in, you know, whether it's like, for instance, one of the steps of the 12 steps is to take a daily inventory, which is no different than doing a Cheshman and Nefesh, you know. Exactly. It's, you know, there's a lot of, like, a lot of things that were taught to me, it was funny, and I'm looking at the 12 steps, and I'm like, wow, this is basically mirroring exactly what's been taught to me since I've been in, in preschool. Right, but we actually, it, I think the, the, the way that we look at it changes based upon the, the, the 12 steps versus the usual from way, because the 12 steps is very, very into this idea of validating the struggle and making sure that we realize that we're not necessarily ever going to win, we're always going to be struggling, and then our community, we sometimes seem to think that there are solutions, and a solution implies that there's going to be an end to the problem, and that's really the biggest difference, I feel, between the recovery kind of approach to issues and the typical, uh, more traditional yeshiva or from-world kind of approach to problems. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, but, yeah, but one thing I would say is not necessarily is, is it a constant struggle, so to say, you know, I'll tell you, I, I Baruch Hashem, I have about three and a half years clean and sober today. Amazing. And, wow. you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm not struggling. I, you know, I think about it, I'm grateful. You know, I, you know, my experience had made me a lot more grateful for the life I have right now and to appreciate the smaller things in life and to appreciate, you know, everything that comes my way because when you're basically on your deathbed and you get saved, you start to appreciate things and see things in a different light, you know. Right, right. But, but you know that it could, like, you know oh, that it could so, crop up at any time. Yeah, but I'm saying like people look at me and they're like, "So every single day is a struggle for you?" And the answer is no. You know, as time goes on, the longer I stay clean and sober, it becomes part of my routine. There's maintenance, right. you know. I'll go to I'll go to the, a meeting. I'll go and and help someone else out. I'll, I'll I'll I stay connected and stay in gratitude. No different than getting an oil change for your car. It's not, it doesn't mean your car is broken or that the car is, you know, not working well. You just want to make sure that you're constantly taking care of it so that it doesn't get to the point where it becomes a struggle again. Right, right, right. Okay, so, you know, we could talk about this for hours and hours. I, I, I know I can and I know I have and I know I do. Um, maybe just give us, uh, you know, the, the 10-second pitch about what you do for Transcend, which is the name of the sober living uh, facilities that, that Asha Gottesman has, has created in, here in Santa Monica. And, you know, tell somebody out there that if they, if they need some help, what you suggest they do as a person who is dealing, I mean, I, I should have been, I should have actually introduced you as, as, as the, um, as the, as a, as a person who works at Transcend, but not just that, that you do admissions and you're working with them on this process in particular. So just give us a, uh, you know, your last minute about this. 
You know, so my, my suggestion is, again, you know, I handle all the admissions for Transcend. My suggestion is if there's anyone struggling out there, just pick up the phone and call. You know, everything's anonymous. There's nothing to be afraid of, and there is help out there. And if you're even questioning if possibly you need help, a phone call can never hurt. You know, you're not committing to anything. You're not, you're not plastering yourself on, a, yourself on a billboard. You're just speaking to someone who gets it, who understands it, and can just, you know, it's basically free advice. So why not, you know? You should never be afraid to get the help and, and, and do, do what's best for yourself, no matter what anyone else is telling you. And we're very grateful that, uh, that, that you're out there helping those people that need help and we're hopeful that people that do need that help or, or those who know, who know others who might need that help, just call, find out. And it's easy to find a place to call if you want to call Transcend, which I recommend. They're great. You call um, 800-648-3906 or just look them up online, transcendr, transcendrc.com. Google Transcend in Santa Monica. You'll find it and get that help that you need because um, it's, not, it's, it's not worth pushing this off. This is life and life comes first. And, and the Torah itself says, we have to live, we have to live by Torah and we have to live first. And thank you for all the work you've done. Congratulations to you on the great accomplishments and achievements you've had in your life, whether they are personal, professional, and also spiritual. Thank you for coming on today. And um, I hope that this was helpful to people. Um, in closing, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening today. This is a tough topic. If you want to continue this conversation anyway, reach out to me. We'll continue the conversation wherever it is, however it is. And with that, I wish you a very happy Hanukkah. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time on the uh, Thinkorswim Live on the Stun Show. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Fire